Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I am joined on this episode by Jordan Ely of the University of Maryland. Jordan, it is October. It is one of the more theatrical times of year. Halloween is just around the corner. Are you, tell us a little bit about your Halloween attitude. Are you an enthusiast? Do you have plans, costumes, decorations, parties looking that you're looking forward to? Yes. Hi. It's so good to be here and see you all again. Um, I'm absolutely a Halloween enthusiast. I love spooky season as the as the young folks say <laughs> um i like i'm all about it i am i'm like saving the new hocus pocus movie for like a really cozy <laughs> fall day where i'm like really want to get into some witchy vibes but i love hocus pocus i love practical magic and i love I love this season also because I get to watch Nightmare Before Christmas for two months because it's both Halloween and a Christmas movie. So it's just like best of both worlds. Um, I'm absolutely planning on dressing up because I dress up every single year. I've had like a 90s like character um, um, thing going for the last few years. Like um, so I might try to continue that theme, but um, but otherwise, yes, I love Halloween. It's my favorite time. That's of fantastic. I, I wasn't sure. I feel like you, could, I, I was going to guess it could have gone either way that you're like very serious, very busy graduate student. You're like, no, I'm not. No, I don't do that stuff anymore. But in, indeed, I'm delighted. You've got movies in mind. You've got a costume in mind. Um, uh, I am, I am also joined by Brian Herrera of Princeton University. Brian, I put the same query to you. Halloween parties costumes, decorations, what's what's on deck for for Professor Herrera? Yeah, I don't know when it was that I rounded the rounded the bend into I no longer dress up for Halloween, but some <laughs> it happened a while ago. And I think a lot of folks it happens sometimes they get rebooted when they have kids and since I don't have kids and I'm not inclined to put my dogs in costumes, um I sort of <laughs> this this uh it's sort of I don't participate. I will say that Jordan's Jordan's response definitely I'm I'm all enthusiastic I think it's the queerest month I think it is uh and I love that yes. and I love that uh I love uh I'm hoping to take a road trip through the Adams that the town that Charles Adams lived which now turns the whole town into a sort of drive-through museum during Halloween during October so I'm hoping to do that but may, mostly what I <clears throat> excuse me mostly what I love about October is that TCM uh, the offerings on TCM and on the Criterion channel just take a whole le- whole turn toward weird, creepy, weird, strange, vintage, Hollywood, uh, like scary movies. And that's there's nothing I like better than that. So both the offerings on Shutter, TCM and Criterion channel make my in-between times all the more delightful because I love looking at, oh, especially pre um, sh- a jump scare hollow- mm-hmm. horror mm-hmm. movies. I love I love the kind of the moody and the like sort 80s of, horror and that type of stuff. Yeah, well, pre 70s, pre 70s, really um, before the blood and the jump scares got to be sort of just constantly ratcheted up with constant suspense. I yes. love the yes. kind of the and I love the and I love the 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 more B minus the better kind of movies. So so um, so it's a, so the offerings on all the streaming apps are just so cool in the month of October. So that's my very 2020s answer to what I love about Octo- uh, about October. 
That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I, um, a friend uh, and colleague here, Rebecca Wanzo, enticed me out to go see um, Barbarian, which I recommend. It's a good, hard to predict, um, fun horror movie. Though I've heard mixed things. Actually, I've heard mostly bad things about the new Hellraiser. The Hellraiser, new Hellraiser reboot preview looked really good, but uh, people who've seen it unfortunately report not, not great. But that's more, it's a different kind of horror. That's like, you know, skin crawling gore. Um, but I will recommend but. that there's there's a new series on Shudder this month, which is a four episode cycle on the queer history of horror and sort of looking at, you know, and so, so it's uh, one of those talking heads of a bunch of different rando celebrities sort of offering their thoughts on various um, horror movie prompts. But it's, I saw the first episode, but um, yeah, so that's why I think for me, Shudder is one of the best values of, uh, maybe this is my draft early, but Shudder is one of the best values of streaming services, especially for the documentaries. That's that's fantastic. Well, an, an enticing preview for um, for the end of the episode. Um, listeners, today on the podcast, we have three topics that invite us to examine the line between theatrical contrivance and concrete social reality. We read The City We Make Together, City Council Meetings Primer for Participation, a new book by Mallory Catlett and Aaron Landsman. Um, this book explains their recent project, City Council Meeting which I would call a novel piece of participatory theater that engages with local governmental assemblies as a species of social performance. We watched the rehearsal, um, and I want to give a quick thank you to listener Sonny Salter-Pace for the excellent suggestion. This is Nathan Fielder's prestige reality documentary series that applies the resources of theatrical simulation to quote-unquote help volunteers prepare for real social scenarios and uh, pushes ethical boundaries along the way. And to round out the the trio, we read a recent Wired article about Nordic live-action role-playing or LARPing, and specifically what happens when a gay journalist signs on to participate in a LARP that simulates a gay conversion therapy process. So the topics, not to, not to get into the meta discussion early, but all of these sort of deal, I think, with um, different different uh, forms of uh, experimental theater. Are they paratheater? Are they simulations? Um, we will get into it right away. Um, though before that, I want to give the land acknowledgement for the episode. I am recording in my office at Washington University in St. Louis, which is situated on the ancestral land of several indigenous groups, including the Osage Nation, the Missouri tribe, the Miami people, and the Illini Confederacy. In 1808, the Osage Nation ceded this land by treaty under threat of destruction by the United States Army. So we want to acknowledge this history, and I also want to thank the Buddha Center for American Indian Studies here at WashU for making this information accessible. And um, as always, we encourage our listeners to learn more about the territory where they live and work. So first up, 
the city we make together, city council meetings, primer for participation, uh, a new publication out of University of Iowa Press. Um, in this book, uh, Mallory Catlett and Aaron Landsman explain the creation of the participatory theater production city council meeting. And it takes a little bit of effort to sort of explain the intricacies of it. And Brian, in a, in a second, I'm going to ask you to help out with um, how, I don't know, how you would categorize this, how you feel like the book lays everything out and explains what this piece is. Um, uh, but in a nutshell, um, the the book explains this bit, uh, this piece of participatory theater that invites participants, audience members, or, or anyone coming to be part of it, um, to act out roles in a city council meeting like event, which incorporates. Um, transcripts and structures and dramaturgical features that um, the creators found at a variety of different American city council meetings. Um, the 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 point of departure for this is, um, or at least the way the book uh, proceeds, is um, a, a particular event in which a man named Pete Colt at a, a city council meeting, a real city council meeting in uh, Portland, Oregon, sort of arrives in a kind of in a beige suit presents as a kind of, you know, innocuous older white man. And then in the course of his two minutes dramatically opens up a bag full of used drug paraphernalia and condoms that he has picked up off the street to make a point about, um, the place where he lives. Um, it's a, it's a fascinating piece. The book really made me want to see this, um, piece of theater. Um, but Brian, what would you do uh, us and the listeners a service and sort of explain the way the book is set up um, and, and tell us any sort of, I don't know, uh, critical observations, reflections that this prompted in you? Yeah, I mean, the book is a really fascinating object, I think, for performance studies scholars and many of the listeners here, in that it really is kind of the equivalent of a scholarly book version of a making of documentary, right? It really walks through the process about how this multi-year, like it spans about a decade of development and uh, circulation and, and all this stuff. It sort of gives the behind the scenes of how this idea came into formation. Um, for those of you who might not have access to the book and would be interested, do a search for the name Aaron Landsman and the Washington Post and a brief uh, account by Lance uh, by Lanceman of the Pete Colt incident uh, 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 ran on the Washington Post a few weeks back, um, and so you can get a sense of that description. And it really does point to what Lanceman, um, who happens to be my colleague at Princeton, though I have no direct experience with the um, with this uh, the city council meeting format. We've discussed it, but I don't really know. I haven't experienced it. I'm actually looking, hoping I'll be able to have a chance of an experience of it because they are staging it as part of the our winter session this year. But um, the uh, but the structure of the book really sort of lays out the process of evolution with Aaron Lansman coming as a theater maker who works in the tradition of elevator repair service and sort of uh, breaking apart existing structures to open out their meanings, but also creating a devising approach to building performance work. At a certain point, uh, Lansman talks about how he felt that it was not enough for him to lead this solo device. He was interested in this dramaturgy, what he saw of the civic architecture of the ritual of civic performance um, that and he was interested in playing with that and so he brought in a colleague who is a director primarily and they together over a space of a number of years built this project which migrated to different cities both uh, finding different collaborators creating an elaborate basically building a performance piece 
that they could then stage in partnership with different communities and different contexts. And so the book lays out, and it's structured dramaturgically in that way. It opens up with prelude. It gives us a sense of where they built it. It also does various analytic digressions. That's sort of what I think is sort of an interesting compositional model for performance studies scholars, because it is really this question of how do we talk about performance? Like, how do we do a theater topics article in book form? Mm -hmm. You know, really talking about making, but then anchoring it theoretically, anchoring it with bigger questions about that come up in the ethical and aesthetic and the consequential ask of what does it mean to take this apparatus, which interestingly uh, stitches together different cities. So there is a kind of way where it is simultaneously these very particular cities ranging from Bismarck uh, to uh, Houston, et cetera, et cetera. But it also becomes no city, but every city. It sort of mm -hmm. layers that in a kind of really with its specificity. Uh, and then it invites folks to step in, as you might in like sort of uh, mock UN or mock trial. It asks folks to sort of step into these structures in a way um, without any expectation that they've had rehearsal. Mm -hmm. Without uh, And it's very much based on this idea of just read the stuff aloud and then just sort of get a sense of it and build something together. I do think that that's finally, and this is, I think, part of what um, uh, the what I took away is the real objective of the piece is the idea of using the apparatus of theater to have folks step in, having not being theater makers, making a piece of theater that is about civic participation, which simultaneously reminds them that they can step into civic structures and remake mm -hmm. those too. Mm -hmm. It uses the, that sort of the taking the leap of the as if, what if I were doing this? And it doesn't necessarily think to what if I was doing this on Broadway? It's more like, what if, what if I was doing this in my town? Okay. And okay. so, so it, it leverages that activating potential of the theater, theater apparatus in, I think, a very interesting way. And um, so that's sort of what I would add. Yeah. Um, I have so many follow-up questions, but Jordan, I really want to know what your impressions were reading this. Yeah, um, I found this particular book to be really interesting. Um, I am a practicing dramaturg, so a lot of the dramaturgical questions were very, very interesting to me um, in terms of like, you know, um, ranging from how how do we like what spaces do we need to make this to what um, um, some of the questions around um, I wanted to read one specifically, but like around the the intention and the impact of the book right is of the of the performance of like um at first wanting to kind of have this big political stance but then realizing throughout the process of like you know we don't want to impose anything we want to make sure that we are are meeting people where they are um and i found for me, some of the the critical self-reflection throughout the book was really interesting to me about like um, going into these communities, mostly made of minoritized people. Um, mm -hmm. And these the two, you know, people who are, are spearheading the project um, being white theater artists who are going into these places and um, having to think critically about what it means to stage a piece on civic participation in a community mm -hmm. that you're not from and that mm -hmm even though you're not from there, you also don't share like kind of identitarian um, similarities mm -hmm. with the bikinis that you're working with either. Um, so like, what does that mean to to bring a big piece about politics <laughs> and not kind mm -hmm. of, um, you know, critically reflect on your own relationship to 
social and political power. Um, mm-hmm. And I think for me, those are the those were the lines um, that were teetered kind of delicately um, mm-hmm. to varying degrees of I don't want to say success, but um, I think, for instance, the. I absolutely was fascinated by, I think they were in Houston and they were working with a woman named Asada, um, which again, very, very, if you know Asada Shakur, right, within sort of black power movements, like having a name like that is very important politically, right? And then, you know, her coming into this meeting with her critiques and her questions with her deep engagement with the project and, you know, them then reflecting on, I think she like left, I think after her first encounter with the project and then coming back, you know, and and actually being a very key player in it. I think that those were the moments that were kind of the most interesting to me, right? Is that um, the ability to self-critique, but also the ability to listen to other people's critiques is what makes a strong collaborative process. Um, and so I, uh, I was really interested in yes, to kind of like, I got something good out of this. This was really great for me, but I also love those moments of tension because I think that's what makes a really strong theater project is that yeah. you can disagree. You can be critical one of, of one another. You can, um, you can be very rigorous and mm-hmm. against even like your fellow theater artists approach to something. And yet, and still you can come together and make a project based on all of those differences, rather than being like, I want you to be subsumed into my vision of this project mm-hmm. um, in order for this to make it work. So um, I think one of the strengths of the book um, as a practical guide for theater artists is around how to navigate those differences um, in the rehearsal process. Um, and then I think that even um, within that, I did question some of the methods in terms of like, there was a portion in the book where they talked about, um, I mean, part of the the process of staging city council meeting is stepping into um, characters that may not necessarily mirror your own. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly enough, I'm teaching theater history right now, and we were talking about the Ars Poetica and the idea of decorum, right? Which is like, you reflect your, like you are, um, your character has to reflect you, right? Like you, age, gender, everything has to be similar. And this mm-hmm. is kind of anti that, right? Like you actually, mm-hmm. there is no, um, there is no need to, you know, have those same similarities and so um with your character and I guess I just wondered to what end because I think that by having this um I think it's really good to say I don't have any expectations of what will come out of this process I'm simply um wanting to stage what happens nearly realistically in the city council space and then seeing how each community deals with that. But then on the other hand, it, on the other hand, right. You don't have any, any expectations, but at the beginning of the book, they had to say like, no, we are anti-Trump. Just want to point that out. Right. We wish the outcome was different. Right. So like there is a need to have, you do have political alliances, you do have political expectations. Um, So then what does that mean when you're trying to navigate those situations when someone is stepping into a character or a person, these are real life people that they're stepping into that are, and then relying on those racialized stereotypes that they mentioned came up in those moments. Um, 
do you just say like, we'll just let it happen and then we'll talk about it, which I think is, is um, that's pretty much what happened in the book. Right. Yeah. Um, or do you kind of navigate that? Like when it's not actually, actually real, which I don't, what is real? What is fake? <laughs> that's, that's our episode today. That's what but, we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, how yeah. do you actually step in, in those moments to really, um, to really, I don't, that's where a director might come in. That's where a dramaturg might come in to say, Hey, how do like, what is, what, how can we fix this? Not fix, but like, how can we really engage this so it doesn't happen? Um, and so that's where kind of the lack of, of, of experience as an actor perhaps can come in. So that's interesting. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, those are my thoughts. Those are my thoughts. Are my well, thoughts. I mean, just to jump in, I think one of the most striking sections for me was when they when they were talking about taking it to NYU and in the writing program and being mm -hmm. advised by the program that saying the students are going to freak out if you ask them to step into a role. And so what they described is they said we adapted what we've been doing for a while. We just made it more explicit, which was they gave everybody options. And I think that that's one of the things that, like they said, if you don't feel comfortable doing this, if you, you know, this is, these are your strategies forward. And I do think that that what I, what I found, and I also thought that it reminded me of the section when they talked about bringing the videographer in and the, the balance mm -hmm. of aesthetics and practicalities in terms of how to bring the videography in, in a way that felt apt, if not accurate, but felt appropriate, but also drew upon technologies, which were actually ubiquitous in city council meetings and church sermons, right? Like mm -hmm. the, the video technology they ended up using were the same videography technologies that were being used in church, like in these kind of non, like this sort of different kind of more community based presentation model. And I think that that's for me what I what I liked about it, what I was first thinking about when Jordan was talking, what I really liked about this is how um, anti it's sort of not especially declarative book i think there'd be a lot of things in this where you would say like what but what, what do you actually think about this or what are you actually saying there there's there's a lot of sort of a, i wouldn't call it equivocation but there's a lot of way of sort of mo modulating the nuance in a, in yeah. a thing and yeah. for me i was thinking like this is two working artists and grant applications do not encourage modulating nuance of effectiveness. Grant applications expect you to declare this is powerful. This is and what the so I think what's also striking is watching these artists sort of be financially transparent, be uh, recognize failure, do all these things which the apparatus of funding large scale projects like this, you know, they even they sort of say it cost way too much they decided it wasn't wasn't sustainable it was more extractive than it was contributive so they were going to not going to do it anymore except perhaps in school and college settings which have a different financial apparatus and so it was uh so i thought it was a really interesting example of how these modes of writing about performance where we often write about why performances worked or why performances i would say uh failed but we don't necessarily write a lot about performances being messy and I think this project really sort of says the mess was the work mm -hmm. and we made choices, some of which were OK and some of which we learned from and others were missteps that we wish we hadn't made. And, and I think that sort of model of writing about performance, we don't have as many examples of. And, and I think that this is what it's also what's striking about this book, something we might want to name in context, is it's part of a public humanities series. It's not part of a theater series. It's part of public humanity series. And indeed, some of the first writing about the book that appeared in print were um, in city governance publications. Like this was, it was really, right. it's, right. it's a, it's a 
project that is sort of straddles, interestingly, high fine experimental New York theater community yeah, engagement, yeah. but then also sort of the question of the apparatus of policymaking. Yeah, that you both have, have brought up so many of the really interesting issues in here. Um, uh, I guess I'm going to try to respond to you both in a way by saying that I, I felt that there was a, I think I had a very similar reaction to what I would call a, a sort of tension, um, a multivariate tension, um, in, mo- foremost in the matter of what's the purpose of this? Why, you know, if you're coming to this, you know, A, why does anyone want to go to, you know, a simulation of a city council meeting? It must have to do with public engagement, civic responsibility. Surely this project is about, you know, saving America by training us all to be good citizens and to engage locally. But they deliberately pull back from that kind of, you know, manifesto or purpose to the project, and they in- instead accentuate the kinds of critical reflections and dramaturgical, uh, I don't know, properties um, that would make this more of a kind of aesthetic piece. And so in that, in a way, I, you know, and this is reducing it down and, and using my own, you know, uh, partial knowledge of, of these types of projects, there's a kind of tension between the Bowalian spectator, um, you know, deliberately using theatrical resources as a way to create an ideal kind of interactive um, political space. There's a tension between that and a kind of, um, and not to disparage the Worcester group, I love the Worcester group, but a kind of high-minded avant-garde aestheticism that just presents for you this weird object that you are aware of from life and which, when it's put on stage in a certain way, can suddenly become a delightful, pleasurable object of disinterested uh, contemplation. Do you know what I mean? So there's all sorts of resonances threaded together in this thing, and, and many of them are cited in the book, the Worcester Group itself, Bowal, um, uh, and his way of working. Um, and in a way, that tension, I find that I found that tension really engaging. I wanted to participate th- in this. It reminded me, you know, it reminded me of dozens and dozens of other projects that I don't want to get into. But Brian, I have to bring up the uh, the courtroom, Water Waterwell Theater's recent project, which is a verbat- piece of verbatim theater drawn from an immigration um, court proceeding, which uh, Brian and I uh, helped put uh, up at Astor in 2019. Um, and in a way, it's I don't know. It, it it raises questions because one sees that, and you're like, oh, at least for me, I'm conscious of how much fun I am having doing this really interesting experimental theater piece, but which is representing a terrible moment in a real person's life. You know, is this book? I, I think that the tension is interesting and, and productive. Um, uh, and to me, it was part of the credit of the project. But I did wonder: is this a sort of you know, Kantian removed, disinterested theatricalization of something that is um, uh, actually has real import and, and ethical implications to it. Um, does it make participants, does it make them into a, pri- is it in fact a primer for civic participation that is going to create audience members and citizens that are going to help, you know, save the world and save America? I'm not sure. 
Well, I mean, I, I, I would say in terms of the Kantian or the aesthetic distance question, in addition to the courtroom, I was struck by the ways that this piece reminded me of Heidi Schreck's What the Constitution Means to Me. Mm -hmm. um, also, the way it reminded me of the of Tracy Letts's play, The Minutes, which is actually takes the structure of a city council meeting to create this um, sort of uh, sort of horrific so it, it becomes about settler colonialism and it's this kind of thing of like what a, and then I was trying to look up the there was a during the pandemic Actors Theatre of Louisville had an interactive piece that was about a city council meeting and it was basically like it ended up meaning that like you were literally sent into breakout rooms and you were asked to role play as, and, and to sort of and then the, the actor facilitators in those breakout rooms would take back the propositions from the group about these banal and it was so it was this interesting question of like what are the rituals? And this, I think, would be the transition as we think about, and I'll take the transition, you can chime in, panel, uh, on on the rehearsal, because I think what, what was very clear when I read the Ans the Landsman book, the Landsman Catlett book, was it's very much um, about sort of the rituals of social engagement. It's very much about how do we take the bridge of the ritual of social engagement, there's these sort of events that happen, they happen in every city, they follow certain genre templates, there's sort of rituals of engagement that are structured, and that are actually consonant, consistent across time, and all these kind of things. What takes... If we take those rituals of social engagement and play with them as theater artists play with rituals all the time in the opening out of acting activating sort of other modes of engagement and 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 I think that that was what was so but it's also in this space that the city council meeting is in the balance that we've been talking about on the podcast since I've been contributing which is this balance of the interest in the immersive the interest in the sort of the the the, the sort of the way in the 20th century 21st century there's a lot of interest in sort of how audience members are in the show not necessarily apart from the show and I think and, and the questions of collaboration and that's really what the what the um, rehearsal uh, the HBO Max series um, led by Nathan Fielder, which is a sort of uh, cringe cringe improvisation model of, of bringing a kind of playing with some of the conventions of reality television of somebody of a camera crew and somebody shows up to make your life better asking you to participate in some sort of time bound overproduced ritual whether it's saving your restaurant or redecorating your house or whatever it's this convention that comes in and then in in a kind of high art avant-garde sort of indie comedy way sort of brings that to a different degree of meta theatricality about the limits of empathy, the limits of how one person can come into somebody else's life. And so the premise of the rehearsal is that uh, Nathan Fielder, whose work I was not familiar with before this, but who has been doing versions of this for a while, coming out of a comedy tradition, but also in a televisual tradition, um, sort of working in this space of showing up. And, and the premise is, is if we could have um, pre-enactments, not reenactments, but pre-enactments of charged environment, charged situations, we might be able to maneuver the emotional complexities to reach more better resulting ends. And so the, the mm -hmm. elaborate, ridiculous conceit is he has this huge budget to build these replica bars with all these hired people to, to like these fake pizza machines and all these things going in to create these scenarios so uh, somebody can sort of have a conversation they've been afraid to have. 
And yeah, then, of yeah, course, as the episode, go ahead. No, no, that's that's it's good. You're getting you're getting right into into the meat of it. I want I wanted to just um, uh, make sure that listeners know that this if they're planning to watch the rehearsal, it's been out for a while. You don't deserve a spoiler a warning about this, but um, I want to get into some of the details of what happens. And and in my view, the show is most enjoyable if you don't know what's coming because it goes in some very weird and surprising places. Um, Jordan, I don't know. Do you want to give for listeners who might not be familiar with it and might not want to watch it just a sense of what the kind of some of the big narrative points are or what some of the people who we meet in the first few episodes? Um, and please, I would like if you wouldn't mind to also contribute where your mind went watching this, um, being a, a theater scholar yourself and dramaturg. Yeah. Um, so this, so as Brian said, the conceit is to, uh, to, I love that pre-enact, right. To pre-enact, um, scenarios to, um, to gain better results in real life. And actually that feels very scientific, right. Uh, kind of a scientific hypothesis. What mm-hmm. if I could, you know, stage a process that would make this thing, um, easier for people or have yield better results actually is probably the, the better or the more accurate terminology to what he is asking. And I was interested, I'll get into that, but like the way he scripted things was also very interesting. Um, so, um, in the first episode, which, um, you know, prior to our recording, um, panel, you mentioned is probably the most interesting. And I totally agree is, um, it, it's one that's the most explicit about the premise. Also, um, it is the episode on um, Core Street, I believe his name was, um, is he is a um, a middle-aged man living in New York who loves trivia. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, also someone who loves trivia, I can totally relate. Um, and he has been sitting with this lie he told uh, about a decade, over a decade ago to his friends that he has a master's degree and it's eating him up because these friends um, always send him jobs that you know, require master's degrees, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, in this episode, Nathan helps him to um, uh, confront this fear and specifically zeroing in on one friend in particular in the group that core believes will have the most, yeah, that Trisha will have the actual, the worst reaction. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so, um, so he helps him to stage that scenario in which he tells her about the, the getting the master's degree um, and, and the rest of the season is actually really much about Nathan, um, which uh, the next episode um, starts off with the premise that we will be watching Angela go into to, to stage um, motherhood because she wants to be married and have a child. And so they kind of help her stage the scenario when she is a mother and they have mm-hmm. children who come in at various ages, different child actors, whatever every three or four hours, something of the sort. And then a robot child for uh, overnight since for child labor law reasons. And then we have Patrick who is, um, who believes he is being kind of uh, not, He's he feels he's owed the inheritance of their grandfather who passed and his brother is keeping the inheritance from him. And so, um, uh, that one is the I I had a lot of questions about that particular scenario, and then the rest of the season, Nathan actually agrees to or or presents the idea of co-parenting with Angela, and then they kind of co-parent this fake 
child or children Mm -hmm. um, throughout the rest of the season as Nathan kind of confronts his own um, desire for parenthood and um, and so many other things come up in those times. I think the biggest thing, and it's actually a question to a different extent that I had about the city we make together, but it's the kind of dramaturgical question that came up for me is like, what does it mean to present images but not fully engage them? Like, um, I think a lot of the reflection that came in the rehearsal was about Nathan himself and his reaction and feelings about things and not necessarily about other um, implications of the kind of work that he was putting out there. Um, And so uh, besides maybe the the little child actor who called him daddy outside of the process. yeah. I, and I was also kind of my questions around consent. I think um, in a in a conventional rehearsal process in a theater and performance or art making thing yep. is that one of the he- biggest things, and especially within the last few years, because of the rise of intimacy coordination and more attentions to that, is yep. that uh, obviously there had to be some sort of consent given but Mm -hmm. at what point in the process was the consent given like did trisha know she was being filmed when she was filmed when she was interviewing the bird watcher who was the also the actor who was playing her to gain information on her right or you know these were uh, like when uh, did the the trivia host know that he was participating in this process what did they think they were agreeing to at the time even if they did agree to something yeah, a lot. Of, I think a lot of the critical reaction to this has been around the really sort of invasive and manipulative tactics that Fielder uses to ostensibly follow through on the the promise of helping these individuals prepare for real social scenarios. So, Core, who you mentioned in the first episode, he meets, and the premise of the first episode is that he will. You know, Nathan Fielder build, builds a very elaborate simulation of the actual bar where the trivia happens. He hires an actor to play a fictitious Trisha. Core gets to act out all sorts of Im- every imaginable reaction that Trisha will have to his confession and then respond to it so that he has practice for any way the conversation goes to build up the courage in him. But then it's revealed that Fielder has built, has spied on Core to practice himself Nathan's first encounter with meeting core and so what core doesn't know at a certain point is that fielder has created a simulation of core's apartment gain by gaining access to it deceptively so that fielder himself can practice for this which calls into question the ethics of what core is doing right trisha the real trisha doesn't know when she has that ultimately has that conversation with core she doesn't know how much she has been surveilled how much uh, core has done to get ready for this so one of the things that you know I think is is distinctive about this compared with the other two topics for the episode, um, though there's a lot of similarities I think, especially with our third topic about LARPing, um, is the knowledge of the participants. Right? If if we think of this as para theater, I um, you know para theater is one of those sort of I don't know relatively obscure concepts in our field, but um, from what I understand it, and this is, I'm going to cite an article by Bruce Wilshire in uh, TDR in 1990 about the concept of paratheatrical uh, work, is that it somehow breaks the seal between artistic fictions and the larger world of fact. It's a sort of contrived, you know, scenario in which participants are neither actors nor spectators, strictly speaking, um, but it gets you into this territory where some people know more than others. 
and is that ethical? So, Brian, I want to pass this to you imminently, but to respond to your question, Jordan, about consent, you know, I think any adult that's in that show um, has to sign a release that allows the video of them to be shown. And maybe they do so in advance and it covers a lot of the activity, but they only know partially what they're getting into. And, um, you know, Angela, who plays the woman who's the a central figure in the in the end of the series, decides to leave the project because she's tired of being manipulated. She's tired of Fielder changing the setup of what's going on. Um, and that last episode around the, the poor kid who sort of buys into the fiction that Nathan Fielder is his dad and wants that, seems to want that fiction over his own everyday life is heartbreaking. And that child, the consent for that child's participation in the event must have been given by his mother, right? But but a, a young child playing a six-year-old who, who is six years old can't necessarily keep track of the shifting realities. So it is an, it's a real ethical problem. But Brian, I'm sorry, you've been ready, ready to jump in for a while. Yeah, I mean, I think that the consent question is, I think, a really important one. But I also think it's a bit, and this is going to sound counterintuitive, because I think it's... I think the discourse around consent in this show is a bit of a red herring because I actually think they actually reveal, they reveal the releases, they talk about how everybody knows they're going to be on an HBO show, which doesn't name the fact of the privilege of like the fact that like I'm, it's HBO, I get a chance to be on an HBO. They sort of name that, they drop that along the way. But I actually think uh, how much of the discourse that has been circulating in the social media sphere, uh, both articles and otherwise, that are sort of puzzling through this question of who knew what when. Um, also mistakes, I think it doesn't name the fact that there's a quote that there, and this is a problem in theater, major problem in theater of what is the consent of the audience. Of course, in the, in, in, in TV, we can always not watch it. We can click away. My partner started watching an episode, didn't finish it, but there is a way in which that this is, I think a lot of our concerns about what did they know and, and did they agree to this is our concern about, should I be watching this? Is is what? How am I implicated? And I think we in para theater and theater and all these kinds of questions. There is theater has over the course of the twentieth century, as the as the tradition of theater going in the United States, especially has evolved, has been mostly about revocal of audience consent. It's been various moments like you buy your ticket, then you do what we tell you. You laugh when we want you to laugh. If you don't laugh, if you laugh in other places, you are violating a contract. We've seen folks rewriting, doing different attempts to rewrite that contract. But generally, there is a sense you buy your ticket, you sign over your rights. You have to turn off your cell phones. You have to do these kind of things. And so there's a lot of habits of coercive uh, enforcement of behaviors of audience members that theater actually activates. And I think that there's a kind of the cringe part of this uh, I think uh, I think that the what what I the, my favorite episodes were the episodes I love the Fielder method which is episode four where he does sort of sets up his own acting school which is where you get a lot of information about what releases they signed what all this kind of stuff but then also the birthday party episodes when he reveals that these are people are paid as extras so that they cannot speak otherwise it'll cost the production more so there's these odd right. so there's these moments when he reveals the contractual boundaries of this yeah. and it does reveal that it is um, for legally everybody's agreed to do this and the sure. question then becomes what is our and, and I think a lot of the focus on did, what did they know is in some ways a way of us not saying 
what is my role in somebody watching this? What is my role in watching this kind of entertainment, whether it's on reality television, whether it's in John Quinones's, what that series on ABC TV that's been around for a long time, like what would you do? This sort of candid camera modality of, yeah. of, of TV comedy, um, where what Fielder really refuses is that sense of secure release. Most candid camera, most reve- have a reveal have a moment when like undercover boss punked they all have this moment of a reveal which is the catharsis of this sort of weird cringy thing and what Nathan Fielder refuses to do is to give the catharsis of the reveal and instead it constantly circles back on Fielder who in some ways becomes a surrogate for us and so the the question of what are we watching this for is a question that is unspoken but is actually underscores so much I think of the anxiety that has been articulated in response to it, because as um, Isaac Butler, who we talked about when we when we talked, to, I talked a little bit about when who wrote the book about the method. He wrote a piece about the episode four for Slate, which is really interesting. And in the way that Aaron Lanceman and Mallory Catlett are always invoking Irvin Goffman as talking about like um, fronts and you perform oneself yeah. for self and all of this, uh, Isaac Butler pulls Boleslavsky in to say this idea of the hunger for the the real and the perf- the performer and the real, and yep. and and says that what what um, the rehearsal is about is sort of revealing the our hunger for that understanding of the distinction between the performer and the real, and the fact that they're it's irretrievable. They are intertwined in ways that we cannot say this is real and that's the performer, and that's yep. the space in which this piece lives. I'm not a fan necessarily of the show, but I did find as I was revisiting the discourse, I realized like oh. A lot of people are worried about consent, and yet he's revealed that consent was was garnered. We can disagree with the legal protocols of can a child consent to role play, but it is also – so why is the – you know, I kept going back to the consent here is what – and what am I agreeing to do when I watch this? Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I think part of that equation is that you then get in today's – you know, today's socially mediated world, you get the – you get the option not only to shut the thing off, but then to also make your opinion known and, and to sort of denounce this or criticize this. Like you're, um, it, it's a really interesting way to pose it as being oriented around audience consent, which I hadn't thought of. But I, I really, I think you're right that the the curious way it circles around to Fielder again, Fielder who is doing these very odd things, going into these different characters, manipulating these people to a degree that would should make anyone with real you know, authentic social feelings, very uncomfortable. Um, but that the reason why that's compelling is not that we're so interested in Nathan Fielder, but that it's it's sort of about us. I will say that one of the reasons I was excited to watch this and talk about it about uh, talk about it on the show is that um, there's an episode of Nathan for you that is about the theater concept. There's an episode where he tries to help a bar get around its smoking ban by essentially creating a smoking section in the bar, which he decides to. Cr- treat legally as a theater stage, right? So that if you are in there, you may smoke because it's legal in wherever this is to smoke on stage, though not in a bar. So then he's, you know, from that moment forward and otherwise, he's playing with precisely that sort of Goffman idea. Um, There's no bright line between theatrical performance and everyday social interaction. This is a fiction that we hold on to, to keep the confusion in our lives to a minimum. But the truth is that we're constantly buying into little fictions of one type or another. And in fact, ourselves are are created on that basis. Um, 
so that's fantastic. I, I, I really appreciate those, those reactions. Um, I suppose now just, oh yeah, please Jordan. I also wanted to say too, is that, um, it actually made me wish that this was out. I think this is an episode that you and I were on panel where we talked about the special issue of, um, was it J A D T on performative X? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And like JDTC, the idea, the and JDTC, yes. 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 I always get them confused. I'm like dramatic theater, dr- drama and theater. I don't know. Too many acronyms. So, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so many acronyms, but, um, but I wish that it was out when we were talking about the, the, the circulation of the word performative in the public discourse. Cause it's just what I kept coming back to when I was yeah. watching the show was like, you know, um, if the understanding of performative, which I know is always changing and always evolving and has different, but if, but the way that I kind of talk to my students about it is around like, you know, something that comes re- becomes real through enactment, right? Like there are mm-hmm. conditions that make something, you know, go from A to B, right? That, um, and so the, the idea here though, if there is this kind of arbitrary line between what is real, what is fake, what has been manipulated to, to get particular reactions out of someone or, you know, when or where they enter into the process as a consenting member of the project, um, or even, or even that the interaction between core and Trisha was Mm -hmm. real. I mean, Mm -hmm. if like, if Trisha knows she's going to be on a TV show, she -hmm. may not have that same reaction that she would actually have outside of that process. So then what are we even watching? You know, is yep. my like at the, you know, at that time too, it's like, um, okay, the surveillance is weird. The consensual process is a little murky. Um, mm-hmm. We don't get into episode four if you stay around that long. But then at the same time, um, it's like this kind of panopticon thing, right? Where it's like, I'm aware that there are cameras. I'm consenting to be on camera. And therefore I'm going to self-regulate in a way mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. if this were outside of my actual life, I may be actually a little bit more mad, you know, or I may actually be a little bit more sad, but because I've been prompted or or, been prompted just by the presence of this apparatus that I am not going to give the either desired reaction or expected reaction, um, or I'm going to be on my best behavior type of thing. And so that was something I was also thinking about around yeah. yeah. What is Anytime, real? As I write my book, as I'm writing my book about casting and looking a lot about the questions of, of sort of the different hierarchies of contracts, what we also acknowledge is that um, these folks are being paid employees to participate in this sort of open-ended scenario. Like everybody's signing a contract to say that they're going to be on an HBO show. And so the boundaries of that you know, so I think that there's a question of authenticity about the camera, question of authenticity about mm-hmm. about following the boss, who is the artist. Mm-hmm. And then also, I think that this might uh, tag into the next one. But it's also, I think it, uh, if I were to, d- to go into what I think this show's about, it also is about the way that artists often use other bodies to figure out their own shit. Yes. <laughs> but yes. You know, and, I don't know, know what you're talking like, about now. No. You know, and it's like <laughs> this way in which we see this elaborate artifice of thing. And it's really just Nathan's uncertainty if he has the capacity to have human empathy. which is what comes up in the grandfather episode, right? This question of how do you get the empathy real? You have to sort of pretend like it's real. You have to fake the reality in order to understand what emotions you have. And, and so I think that that is also this question of, of, 
where is the space of interpersonal empathy in the reality TV era, in the TikTok era? You know, this question of this mediated space where so much of what we see in human interaction is is this. But then on the flip of that is so much of the artiste uses other body stories and experiences as raw material for their own processing forward as an artist or possibly as a human. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating sort of stepping into all the pressure points of what makes our society a sort of a mess right now. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to go right into the segue. Um, We could do lots of time on these topics, but in a way you could argue, and I'm a fan of this series and I like Nathan, Nathan Fielder's work, um, with, you know, ethical qualifiers, especially around what that child, um, was put through. But, um, boy, that sentence sounds great. sounds terrible out of context. Um, but I'll, I'll just say this, that in a way by not cleaning up the ethical mess before it's presented to the audience, this show tells you a lot of what's wrong with reality TV in general, where people are manipulated with their own consent, but used in in ways that are um, really gross when you learn the reality of it backstage. Um, In this case, and and to your point, Brian, you know, perhaps a broader feature of the theatrical art form in general, um, the way other human beings are used as elements of artistic process. Um, But he doesn't clean it up for you and, and leaves you with the discomfort. Which is an interesting feature of this. Um, uh, the there out of any possible number of segues between these two topics and our third Nordic LARP, um, um, uh, the 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 issue of bleed, um, the 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 phenomenon that the participant in this mentions deep into the article, which is that the participants in these simulations uh, ultimately find that they have a difficult time compartmentalizing the emotions that belong within the scenario uh, with respect to the emotions that are part of um, the world outside the scenario. Um, Certainly something that happens in um, the rehearsal. Um, But we wanted to recommend to our our readers, or maybe we don't recommend it. I certainly recommend it. Um, This article in in a recent uh, edition of Wired Magazine, uh, written by Jason Anthony, entitled my four days in fake gay conversion therapy. Um, it is a immersive look at um, one particular um, LARP or live action role play scenario in Denmark and sort of meant to give you an introduction to the broader phenomenon of Scandinavian LARPing. Um, uh, these are, you know, uh, a variety of different sort of innovative participatory activities or games or uh, participatory for performances in which um, people sign on to be part of a time-bounded simulation of some alternate reality, perhaps historical, perhaps contemporary, perhaps fantasy. Um, uh, but in this case, the it's a, it's a first-person narration of the author, uh, who is gay himself, um, going into a, a, a LARPing scenario in Denmark in which participants Participants are basically cast as um, uh, members of a, a gay conversion therapy uh, group. Um, so, Brian, you brought this to our attention. Brought this to our attention in the context of the of the other topics. Uh, will you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I read it um, mostly because I was I'm still in the learning curve with the LARP, even though I feel like I am understanding it in relation to a variety of other immersive role play environments, whether they be sort of cosplaying sort of modalities or erotic fetish culture modalities, like these moments which are really guided by sort of counter or sort of parallel, like really exempted from the rules of society to build an alternate world in which um, 
real experiences can be had within the boundaries of this frame. And so it's sort of like, I think the commodified version might be Meow Wolf or, or even Escape Rooms, you know, this kind of these kind of like micro versions of let's go into an alternate reality for a moment to have an actual visceral experience that might be clarifying of selfhood or of relationships. And I was particularly I've been I learned about LARP at first. And I think part of the reason I leapt to it was uh, a colleague in 2020 um, who, uh, Cesar Alvarez, was in residence at Princeton, a musical theater composer, um, and was going to be staging uh, an immersive version of their musical, um, uh, the um, I just, uh, The Universe is a Small Hat, which was basically a sort of a... Uh, a group of folks leave this planet because the planet's about to go away. And it was built around this premise of a co-created um, immersive musical in which the audience would be participants. And it used as one of its compositional reference, the apparatus of the LARP. And one of the things that was really coming up for us as we were preparing to stage it, of course, unfortunately, it's one of the great losses of the spring of 2020 in that this production was interrupted. But one of the processes was how are we going to modulate questions of consent at every level? So the audience members going in understand what they're doing, understand when how you can tap in and out like there was a lot of work that was going around there but I also so I felt that so for me in my really thinking of LARP as a word or LARP as a practice I was thinking of it in its dynamic relationship to what does it mean to stage theater so as I went to this mm -hmm. I went to this article and went into this article in a very different modality which was on a much more diaristic or memoiristic or subjective relationship of somebody's own relationship to their 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 queerness as it was being challenged and confronted by this queer authored uh, version of a conversion therapy camp. Because uh, he knows that the people who built this scenario are queer themselves and like all these things, but there's still this kind of willingness to immerse into the confrontation and follow the rules I mean, I came up in a time when these party games where like these murder mystery party games where you would come and you'd have your, your what role you played and this sort of like murder on the casting couch kind of scenario. like it's it's sort of this next level of D&D &D meets that in a way that is yeah. pretty deep. And it was fascinating to see um, how identity gets fractured, how affiliations and intimacies get transformed and how this author as an American who's new to the tradition of LARPing, unlike many of his collaborators in this scene in this in this scenario um is really grappling with some of that divide between the real and the per the real and the performance um which is i think mm -hmm. the thread that guides this stuff all the way through today is like what is interesting and also complicated and especially in the u.s context about there being um a blurring or a bleeding between the real and the performance Absolutely. I, um, Jordan, I, I'm very interested in your reaction to this article, but I want to make sure that I bring up uh, Scott Magelson's book, Simming, which in a way was one of the reference points that I've had through all of these topics. Um, you know, I, in our in our discussions, I haven't wanted to get too focused on, is this paratheater? Is this simming? Is this documentary theater, et cetera? Because ultimately you're you know, talking more about the definitions than the phenomena. Um, but but Scott writes a book about a range of sort of contemporary participatory activities, and he talks about historical reenactments. He talks about sort of military operation preparations. Um, but in his definition, these activities are generally meant to educate, persuade, indoctrinate, or transform participants. Um, and in that way, I think the, you know, the to a different degree, these three phenomena all do that. Um, but the it, with the LARPing, it seems like it's become something much more flexible in the 
in the you know northern european contexts they're talking about sometimes it's a you know re- relation to a period in history sometimes you're transplanted into a novel um but it doesn't necessarily you know scott says that the simming activity is a bounded action that bears performative reference to another action which stands which is or stands to become more legitimate or weighty in another time or context so reenacting a particular moment or preparing for a moment there's 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 shades of this in in the in the larp phenomenon um but uh, I'm not. I'm not sure that it means that you can count all LARPing as simming, right? Sometimes it seems like it's more open-ended and more about a a category of experience rather than a sort of different event in the past, future, or in a hypothetical scenario. Do you know what I mean? Um, but uh, Jordan, uh, please tell us what your you know are there are there threads that connected this to the other two topics for you? What did you grasp onto with LARPing? Are you a LARPer yourself? I am not a LARPer, but I am a huge nerd. So um, I feel like a lot of my interests, um, there's a Venn diagram of like, I'm, I, I love comic books. Like I like yeah. superhero movies. I, you know, um, I don't play video games. So that's probably the last disconnect, I think, between myself and the rest of the geek community. But um, I know and love a lot of LARPers. And I think that it's really cool. And cosplayer, you know, books like that. I don't quite get into surprisingly the theatricality of that but um but really into larping as a from a, from a distance um i think for me and you know i think you two have really illuminated the kind of mechanics of this especially within theater and performance studies um concepts i think that um you know this is kind of the i feel like if the city we make is kind of engaging on a macro level i think uh, the rehearsal is kind of trying to do a little bit of both. And I think this is like the more kind of affective, subjective experience of what it means to step inside of a, a role and what it means, like, and what you take from that experience. So like Brian's earlier provocation around how artists use other people's bodies to figure out their own thing. I think that um, with this, I, I don't know. I was kind of emotionally struck with how the author was um, was kind of like. Yeah, like the emotional experience that he had with with LARPing um, Mm -hmm. in this gay conversion therapy camp. And then I was also struck by the kind of cultural context and differences that came from this. Right. So like he, you know, the part in the article where he's like, you know, I don't know you know, straight people could deal with how sad this is. And they're like, this isn't sad. There's sadder things, you know, <laughs> which is so wild because this is about gay conversion therapy. There's, um, you know, mentions of self-harm and suicide and all of these other um, things. But yet, you know, a lot of the uh, people who were, you know, veterans of this particular practice um, were like, yeah, but you find community, you make friends, you, you know, you do all these other things. And it's so interesting to me how they're able to, how, how there's an ability to distance oneself from the process. And, you know, I'm not an actor. I haven't acted in a really long time, but I, I imagine that there are different, are critical differences between actors who are able to step outside of those roles and distance themselves and actors who are able to, you know, play a role or who are, who are not able to, to distance themselves from the role that they play, like the kind of emotional attachment to 
the role that you're playing. And so, you know, I think that reading from the perspective and I think like to varying degrees, acting was a kind of contested site in each of the three places that we, uh, three objects that we talked about um, in this episode. But, um, but I think that, you know, seeing it from, I think seeing, seeing theater and performance studies from the perspective of people who are not like deeply entrenched in the field is always, I think, teaches us so much about how we talk about what we do. Um, and so like when you, when I'm reading this Wired article and this person is like unable to divorce themselves from this character of Ferret, but also saying though this is Ferret and this is me, but like there's still somehow an at emotional attachment that I have to playing this role is really, I don't know, it's really fascinating, right? Because it's like, you have this rehearsal process that it's always like, leave everything at the door. You come in and you're this person, right? And so I think, what does it mean to have a, like, to actually not be able to step outside of the emotional experience that your character is having and actually just truly sitting with it and having playing that role really shape you. Um, mm -hmm. That is it's not something we really, we don't talk about the emotional part of that a lot. Um, and I think it says, oh, you're a professional actor. Like, you don't have to think about that. Um, but like when you're an amateur, you know, mm -hmm. really taking on what m m people do professionally every day, like that's going to have a way different um, 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 effect on you. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll, let me jump in really quickly because I think that that was one of the things that struck me about this intensively, which was there's a, there's a kind of, uh, cross-cultural experience. So there's an American writer going to this, you know, Danish context. He is sort of blown away by how much emotional pain he suffers and how uh, the other participants seem to take this as like, yeah, that's not a big deal. I think there's a, you know, his character is pushed to the brink of suicide. And after the fact, other participants say, yeah, 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 that's no big deal. People kill themselves in LARPs all the time. Um, and so my question was, was, is this sort of disconnect or my reaction reading this? Is this about my Americanness looking at another culture? Or is it that I'm a theater educator and I'm deal, I'm, thinking often about the young people in the productions or the classes and what I'm asking them to do and what the psychological damage might be that I'm asking them to incur. Um, I think it might be both, you know, I think there might be a, a, a bit of a, you know, in American theater culture, a sort of um, accentuated concern with what the psychological harms are in what we're doing, especially in, in, you know, I don't know, the past 10, 15 plus years. Um, but, um, uh, so maybe it's many of those different things at once. Um, but Brian, what were you going to say? Yeah, I, I think two quick points. I think on the one hand, I think it's genre genre fluency, right? You know, I think if, if you talk to people who play video games all the time and like me, like watching a video game, I'm shocked at how much blood and how much violence it is. You talk to regular, <laughs> you talk to people who are in video game worlds all the time. And they're like, oh, no, that's that's this one's pretty mild. You know, it's like. It might have something to do with genre fluency. But the other thing I think which is really crucial, what for me, what was the thread that ran through all of this that was really important was the question of consent, right? And and I think the question of a lot of the vocabularies that have introduced been being introduced to our field over the last ten or fifteen years, in some ways responsive to this sort of the authoritarian approaches to theatrical theatrical sort of space making um, where you were supposed to not have your own feeling. You were supposed to leave it at the door. And I just had a conversation 
conversation with a major New York producer this week about a project that they're undertaking and um, said, I think the thing you really need to, given that this is a compressed, accelerated practice process around a really charged show, you probably need to sort of build a company model of de-rolling, which is something that in intimacy coordinators offer, which is this question of what are the ritual practices of entering into a scene and then stepping out of the scene so you don't bring the scene out with you to mm -hmm. your life, to the process or to your home. And I use the analogy of like uh, scuba divers, they have to decompress as they come up because otherwise it will be harmful. And I think often in rehearsal processes, there's a sense of like, okay, we're done and we run. And intimacy work will often say there's some boundaries that don't take a lot of time that can actually enhance safety. And one of those safety pieces is de-rolling. And I do think that there is a kind of thing where genre fluency, they other experienced LARPers might have a sense of gliding in and gliding out. But there, it can be a bit of an a dis, the discombobulation that he experiences is he doesn't necessarily have those fluencies to understand how I'm stepping into and out of. And, yeah. and yeah. that is, I think, part of what we are looking at as the field of theater and performance making changes. So it's not shut up, don't have feelings, don't have needs. If you're injured, shut up, don't say a word. Like, like as that culture is changing, what are the techniques that are necessary in order for some of these other ethical considerations to have room in this space? And, and so, um, so for me, that was the, the thread in addition to the, the, the para theater, in addition to the, the question of the immersive and the collaborative, in addition to all these things, I was really noticing how much I was thinking about consent in all three of these projects and, and, and the ways in which that I may not have 10 years ago. But foregrounded in my mind was what were the mechanics of, what are the implications of, and what's the problem around consent that this piece is stirring. Absolutely. Um, thank you both so much. Uh, we need to move on just for time considerations, but before we sign off, we have a minute or two for our drafts. Uh, listeners to the podcast know that on tap drafts are our our musings, our our thoughts kicking around, maybe work-related, maybe not related, usually theater and performance-related, but not always. Um, uh, Brian, do you have a draft you want to share with us? Uh, just in the interest of time, I'll just say that Shudder, if you're at all horror-inclined this October, Shudder's a great value. By the year, you won't regret it. Fantastic. Jordan? Um, I am so excited because, yes, it's spooky season, but... <laughs> Survivor is back. <laughs> and also at the same time as Survivor is the Amazing Race, which never happens. They're usually on like two different times. Um, but really the biggest kind of theater and performance studies reality competition show that I think I never thought of as like within our field, but now that I'm watching it. So there's a new reboot on Netflix of the early 2000s show, The Mole. If you are the, the mole, right? So like a lot of the mole, if you are not familiar with the mole, is that it's a group of strangers who have to complete these tasks. And each task has a dollar amount that adds to a larger pot that someone will win. But the twist is that there's a mole in the mist, right? Who's job is to also sabotage along the way and to stop them from making as much money as possible. And so, you know, you have to... Um, th this mole has to be someone who is skilled enough to not get caught, right? So like it, it does a lot of role play. It has to do with a lot of performing this character, right? And the getting people to trust you or not trust you. Like there are some people who are, who want to intentionally 
think make people think that they're the mole so they can get to the end um, because they have mm-hmm. to take a quiz at the end of each episode that asks you questions about who you think the mole is and you ultimately also say who you think is a mole um so anyways i've been watching that the reboot is fantastic for people who were fans of the mole like i was um so um so yeah i'm really excited with all my reality competition shows it's offering me some levity as i work on this dissertation <laughs> i i couldn't get through the i couldn't get through the day without uh british murder mysteries and reality television those are the two things that just keep me alive <laughs> Um, again, my draft will be incongruous. Uh, the thing that's been kicking about my around in my mind is about the chapter I'm working on my book about social theory. And to boil it down, I'm starting to look at the language we use of action and event. Um, you know, I'm, I'm diving into uh, Victor Turner's background, the background of cultural anthropology that was, you know, one of the formative influences in performance theory, um, and tracing the lines back to big classical social and sociological thinkers like Emil Durkheim and Karl Marx. Um, and that research has gotten me attuned to the language of action and the language of event. Um, and so what I'm finding is that this is language that is really deeply woven into performance theory and performance studies. I've been looking at, um, you know, trying to move beyond the, you know, sort of Richard Schechner, Victor Turner moment. I've been reading um, Peggy Phelan, Diana Taylor, um, uh, Barbara kirschenblatt Um, and in all of their work, and Rebecca Schneider, and in all of that work, there's the the language, you know, performance is sort of described differently as actions or events. Um, and I feel as though there's a sort of pattern to it and that you can sort of link the action term to a Durkheimian model where it's about a subjective decision. It's about the moral concept, the moral conditions that an, an individual has when they do something. And that event um, seems to be used more when there's a, a sense of a, an objective set of circumstances, not as much what an individual is doing, but a sort of thing that emerges. Um, so at any rate, it's it's a partially formed thought. It's an object of investigation. But um, you know, listeners, co-hosts, if you're if you notice anything, any patterns in the way we write about action and event, uh, I would love to hear it. Um, uh, Jordan, Brian, thank you so much. Such a pleasure to speak with you as always. Um, uh, listeners, thank you for downloading and streaming. And our next episode will be recorded um, in person at Aster in New Orleans. And we hope to see many of you there. ONTAP is produced and engineered by Charles Ketchaba. It's supported by the School of the Arts, Media, Performance, and Design at York University in Canada and its Department of Theatre with undergraduate and graduate programs in theatre performance, production and design, and performance studies. You can find more episodes of the podcast and other information on this and other shows at ontappod.com. That's O-N-T-A-P-P-O-D.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's great if you subscribe, and we always appreciate listener comments and reviews. You can email us at hosts at ontappod.com, or find us on Facebook by searching ONTAP, and on Twitter at ONTAP Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.